American democratic capitalism is in danger. How can we save it? For its first 200 years, the American economy exhibited truly impressive performance. The combination of democratically elected governments and capitalist system worked, with ever-increasing levels of efficiency spurred by a division of labor, international trade, and scientific management of companies. By the nation's bicentennial celebration in 1976, the American economy was the envy of the world. But since then, outcomes have changed dramatically. Growth in the economic prosperity of the average American family has slowed to a crawl, while the wealth of the richest Americans has skyrocketed. This imbalance threatens the American democratic capitalist system and our way of life. In his brand new bracing yet constructive book released this week, When More Is Not Better, he starkly outlines the fundamental problem. We have treated the economy as a machine pursuing ever greater efficiency as an inherent good. But efficiency has become too much of a good thing. With lucid analysis and engaging anecdotes, he argues that we must stop treating the economy as a perfectible machine and shift toward viewing it as a complex adaptive system in which we seek a fundamental balance of efficiency with resilience. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with world-renowned business thinker Roger Martin as we discuss an obsession with economic efficiency. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curve benders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curve benders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Curvebenders podcast. My guest today is Roger Martin. He is one of those incredible minds in our modern time. And I was um, blessed in many ways to meet Roger a couple years ago at the Thinkers 50 Global Gathering, where they actually named them the number one global thinker in the world. Roger, welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. Hey, it's great to be here with you, David. For those who may not know as much about you, your background, could you spend a couple of minutes uh, just sharing where you've been, what you've done, and highlights of, of your journey so far? Sure, uh, David. I guess uh, the background is I started my career as a strategy consultant uh, with a firm called monitor company. I was one of the crazy people who thought the world needed another strategy consulting firm, uh, did that for a decade and a half, and then got talked into returning to my home country, which is Canada, to run the business school at University of Toronto, the Rotman School of Management, which I did for 15 years. 
And I wrote lots of books and articles about various aspects of management. And then at the end of my term as dean, which was 2013, I started a project at this institute that our donor had named after me, the Martin Prosperity Institute, on the future of democratic capitalism. And so I spent the last six years working on that and just finishing up a book on that particular subject. That's going to be a a big part of our focus today. I'd love to hear the synopsis for the new book is titled as When More is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. Roger, where did the idea come from and what, what prompted you to write this? Well, what prompted the project that ended up resulting in, in the book was my concern that the functioning of the American economy, which I would argue was a thing of rare beauty from 1776 to 1976, where the economy accomplished something I think uh, economy should strive for, which is it advanced the prosperity of the country quite broadly. So that if you were a middle class, median income family, your uh, economic well-being marched forward pretty consistently across those 200 years. Sure, there was the Great Depression, the Long Depression in the late 1800s. But but generally speaking, there was this march forward of uh, society to higher and higher prosperity for a broad swath of that society, plus sort of a commitment to tax in a way that that helped the poorest in that society do better than they would otherwise by taxing the more well-to-do part of that society. So that's the formula that worked until 1976. So 200 years track record, pretty good. But what worried me was since that time, what had happened is the forward progress of the median income family had stalled almost completely And the rewards to economic growth were going disproportionately to the top 10%, 1%, 1 1-tenth of 1%, 1 1-hundredth of 1%. And so that was what worried me. I said, what about the American economy has changed so that 200 years it worked one way, and now in the last 40-plus years it it was working a dramatically different way? And I wanted to study that. I didn't know what the what the answer was when I set out to study that. But that was the that was the problem that worried me because my view is that the combination of democracy and capitalism is quite a lovely thing, right? Where you've got a democratically elected government that is pursuing a largely capitalist economy that has provided the greatest amount of of growth and and made America the the world's biggest economy. And if the 50th percentile family, which in some sense represents the swing voter, doesn't think it's working for them, they will change. And we know this happened. This happened in the Great Depression, right? Many of the world's developed countries during the Great Depression, both in Europe and Asia, went either communist socialist or fascist because the economy wasn't working for enough citizens. America, during the Great Depression, stayed democratic capitalist. It shifted left, right, under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, shifted the spectrum left, but stayed democratic capitalist. I don't 
want to have another another situation where where or at least in 2013 when i started this project i said i don't want another situation where the american middle class median voter is is saying i'm not sure writ large this system works for us fascinating that you you embarked on that journey to understand what changed what did you what did you uncovered that in fact had changed what's happened is that america has ramped up if you will its obsession with the notion of economic efficiency in such a fashion that what it's what it's doing is creating unintended consequences of that so that actually dramatic increase in income inequality is an uh, an effect of the of the cause. The cause is this obsessive pursuit of efficiency that's manifested in a number number of ways. So what I've discovered is that we should not be surprised at what we've gotten now in the last 40 plus years. And sadly, if we don't make some changes in our obsessive pursuit of, of economic efficiency, we're just going to get more and more of this, which will strain democratic capitalism even more than it's strained today. Can you give us one or two examples of this obsession with economic efficiency? Sure. Uh, one would be a treating efficiency in labor as reducing labor costs, reducing labor costs both through staffing more tightly, let's say in retail, making sure that the fewest possible people are on the on the retail floor at any given time to make sure you don't have excess staff to pay them as little as possible because that's being efficient in your use of of uh, human resources right when you do some of that it's okay when you do that excessively right it both makes those jobs you know pay less than less than a, a living wage it makes it such that you actually don't serve the customers uh, very well. And while you may, for a short a period of time, make lots of money uh, doing that in due course, you are making greater uh, inequality and less happy customers so that the economic machine actually doesn't work positively. If instead you're Costco, right, and for you, minimum wage is an irrelevant notion because nobody in Costco earns anywhere close to the as low as the minimum wage. You pay high wages. You actually build in slack, which many would, would, would think of as completely inefficient, so that customers can get great service. You have happier employees who serve customers better who earn more than a living uh, wage and can can um, you know build a life for their family and you make more money than competitors so that is saying efficiency is good but some things that appear inefficient are not actually inefficient in a longer term more holistic sense it doesn't sound like you're against efficiency you, you your your supposition is excess of it is it's it's in many ways diminishing the impact and it's it's actually contributing to this economic inequality and it's really creating a bigger divide between the haves and have nots. That is absolutely correct. And in addition, it's measures of efficiency that end up being the problem. 
So that I think running an efficient retail operation, if we just stick with the retail example, is, is a good thing. But if you say efficiency means lower wage costs, right, that's a, that's a proxy, a way of measuring are we efficient or not. Ah, oh, we lowered our labor cost 5% again this year, so we are more efficient. Those measures are become, in the mind of the person pursuing it, the actual thing. It's a phenomenon called surrogation. You surrogate the proxy for the thing you want. This is like Wells Fargo saying, ah, you know, having more accounts per person means they will be more loyal to us. Well, there's some, some amount of truth to that. But if those accounts were opened uh, against, against their will or without their knowledge, that's not going to make you more loyal. But when you say more accounts equals more loyal customers, more sticky customers, etc., then you get into this problem. And that's what's happening, which is people are taking something that's a, a useful notion, be more efficient, then developing a proxy for it, and then treating the proxy as the thing. And it's in that, what I call, chain of imperfection. You've got a goal. You develop a proxy for that goal. You develop a model for how that would happen, a, a proxy for the goal. Then you only think about the, uh, the proxy. It's like shareholder value maximization. That's a proxy. You, know, you use as a proxy for the value of the firm today's stock price. Now, in some you know, kind of very general sense, we know that's nuts because stock prices go up and down and up and down. And do, did the prospects of the company change that much in a day? And we say, no, well, that was just variation. Well, okay, fair enough. But why do you then treat today's stock prices the most compelling, holistic, universal uh, measure of the firm's value? That's surrogating a proxy, today's stock price, for something that you care about, the value of your company. I've always believed uh, metrics and compensation drive behavior. And it sounds like we're, we're all uh, measuring potentially the wrong things, measuring, again, the wrong proxies as you, as you alluded to. Yes, I, I would say often our proxies are too narrow and too short uh, term. And it's partially because we have, I think, of a model for the economy, a metaphor for the economy and for businesses within that economy as machines. Right? Say more about that. Well, like, you know, we often think of uh, when we talk about the economy, we've got to prime the pump to get the economy uh, going better. That's a machine metaphor. We say the economy is kind of like a machine. Ray Dalio says this in, in his, his speech as well. It's just a machine. And you've got to understand how the machine works. What I would say is the characteristics often of a machine, let's just say a car, for example. The car is a whole bunch of subsystems. It's got powertrain, it's got heating, cooling, ventilation, it's got entertainment, it's got braking, it's got various subsystems. And since it's a machine, you can have engineers optimize each of the subsystems, and you kind of add them up, and you you will kind of get the summary of that, of that machine working. You know that when you press the gas, uh, it goes faster. When you press the brake, it, it goes slower. That's a machine. And we've taken that 
to the economy to say that's how the economy works. If we do this stimulus, this will happen to the the economy. And it turns out that the economy just doesn't behave. Right, the ability of economists to actually forecast these these things is hopeless and pathetic, and it's because the economy is actually more like the Amazon jungle than it is an automobile. It's a complex adaptive system where you can't really tell if you push or pull on one lever, push on one button, what what exactly will happen. It has all sorts of feedback loops. Uh, and non-linear aspects to it that makes that harder to predict. And we treat it like a machine. And that's where we come with, with these narrow proxies. We can say, if I do this with labor costs, I take a few people off the, sh- the floor of the retail store. There's nobody saying, here's how that will connect with the feeling of being served by the customers. Am I in a store like Costco where there are people literally wandering around, people working in the store wandering around, delighted to help you and knowledgeable about where to uh, take you because they're cross-trained to do that versus some other retailers that shall remain nameless where you can't find anybody. And if if you find them, they say, I have no idea. So we don't. We don't have this more holistic view, uh, and it's because of the, the metaphor. The metaphor is, is the economy as a machine. You can break it into little sub-silos and dole out those to various, various experts in that narrow discipline, and they will pull the correct levers to make it work. Just just doesn't work uh, that way. So I'm fascinated because of my perception is you're trying to dramatically change our perceptions and human behavior, which is, which is the Herculean effort if there ever was one. But I do appreciate that you, you reference an agenda for different audiences from business executives to political leaders, educators, and even each of us as citizens. Can you, can we go down the list and give us now, now I'm fascinated by what you believe is the answer. Sure. Let's start, let's start with the business executives. What's one thing beyond the the, the retail example in a Costco? Give us one one of your highlights of the agenda for business executives. Well, one, and it does relate a bit to Costco, but it would be generalizable. Is just recognize that slack is not the enemy, right? There's a view that we must get rid of all waste, but not all waste is waste. Waste is uh, what one person's waste can be is another person's buffer, right? And so, so recognizing that there's an optimal level of buffers, redundancy, slack in a system rather than get rid of it all would be one of the agendas for uh, executives. Um, a second one would be we've just got to turn their backs on what is the modern dominant business vector of reductionism where we break the company into little parts and have each part optimized and expect the whole to add up to what uh, what we'd like it to it just it just doesn't work that way um and and so more the amazon jungle versus the engine yes yes right right our our model should be the amazon not amazon Switch gears to political leaders. Sure. So for political leaders, if they were to recognize that it's a complex adaptive system, uh, 
right? They'd stop trying to do omnibus permanent fixes, right? So we have the dot-com crash and, and all the scandals that came out of that. And we say Sarbanes-Oxley is the one comprehensive thing that's going to fix it and make sure we'd never have, never have a, a kind of a bad, you know, market crash like we had when the, when the dot-com bubble burst in 2000, 2001, right? Well, what happened with that comprehensive fix, right? Seven years later, we had even a bigger crash, right? And the reason is you cannot create comprehensive fixes for problems in one shot. So we should write the need for revisions into all of our legislation. And I use as an example, the in Canada, the the most important financial services legislation is the Bank Act. When it was put in place, there was a required revisitation and revision of the Bank Act every 10 years. It's actually been reduced now to every five years. So there's an understanding that banking is going to change so much that the regulations will be, will be out of date and we have to review them. It's not a political thing. It's not one party saying, oh, the banks are being terrible, so we're going we're gonna to push politically forward. It's just written into the legislation, uh, a legislation that was done in the, in the late 19th century, so it's quite prescient. Talking about proxies, uh, the unfortunate uh, a- aspect of, of the U.S. political system is also we, we punish any politician who changes his or her mind. Yes. With additional information, if they went one direction initially, got more information and changed course, they're suddenly flip-floppers. And, and yes. that is a, it's an unfortunate environment. No, David, you make an extremely important uh, point. That is, right, you are, ref- you are reflecting the problem that you're reflecting is the machine metaphor. It's you should have been able to understand the machine. You should have been able to do all the analysis, and you should have been able to come up with the right answer. And you didn't, so you're a fool. It all makes sense in the machine metaphor. But if you're saying that politician is running a complex adaptive system, then you'd praise them for reading and reacting. So they, they try something, part, it works partially, partially not. So they shift and they shift and they shift and they're going to keep shifting. So you're, you're absolutely right. But it comes back to that model. Like we have models that are based on metaphors. And metaphors drive our behavior, the way we model, and then the, the proxies we create to measure our, our, uh, our goals. So that, that, is, that is one. And, and another is, is uh, we've just got to revisit the craziness that's happened with respect to antitrust for almost a century from Sherman in 1890 and Clayton Act in 1914. We have said, even though a monopoly might be efficient, in the sh- in the short term, in the long term, it's bad because monopolies don't don't serve their customers particularly well, and they also can extract all the value from customers. So we're going to break up monopolies, even though breaking them up might result in less efficiency. Or we're going to regulate them. So we have water power uh, kind of monopolies that we say we'll take the efficiency and regulate them. In the eighties and nineties, through a period of about. Uh, 15 years, actually 15 years from 1982 to 1997, the antitrust guidelines in the United States, enforcement guidelines were changed to create an efficiency defense. 
So if you can improve that you will be more efficient if you merge two big companies together to be the dominant player, that is a legitimate defense of uh, monopolization. It's insane. Right? It just undoes 100 years of uh, philosophy about monopolies. And interesting enough, and this is why I studied the United States on this, is the United States exports these things. Canada and the EU both have that now. They've adopted the efficiency uh, defense for monopolization. So I, th I think we just got to go back to what was this all about? Innovation, protecting uh, consumers, not about this obsession with efficiency. Let's uh, switch gears to educators because you have one or two ideas for educators. Yeah. Uh, so educators actually teach reductionism as if it's a good thing. Right? When you think about it, they will happily teach you this is history and we don't have to have kind of any understanding of sociology or psychology or math or science. Everything is taught in narrow disciplines and you're taught both implicitly and explicitly that keeping all else equal is actually a good thing when it's a terrible thing to teach, I'm afraid. The other thing that's taught is certainty. There is a right answer and a wrong answer. If you, if you just think about to work your way through the higher ed, ed system, right? the way we decide whether you're worthy of going to one college or another is you write the SAT or then you write the GMAT or the MCAT or the whatever. All of those tests still are dominantly 80% or more. There are Here's a question. There are four answers, A, B, C, D, or maybe five, E, and you either get the right answer or the wrong answer, right? So we are both implicitly and explicitly teaching certainty. And never very receptive to creative problem solving or creative no. thinking or, no. or, 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 God forbid, you object against a predetermined path or predetermined course of, uh, of quote-unquote learning. Yes. No, ab ab absolutely. And educators will tell you, oh, no, 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 we teach creativity and collaboration and all of that stuff. Those are all things that the education world has recognized are 21st century, you know, kind of skills, but they aren't taught or only taught in, in, a, in a tiny minority of, of, uh, of cases. And this is fascinating because that's been a, a, a preponderance of your, of your career and your background. Yeah, no, a, a, bu a bunch of the stuff that I've worked on in, in, in the past, when I looked at the economy, I guess I recognized how much of a link there is between stuff I wrote in 2007 and the opposable mind on creative thinking and stuff I wrote on design and design of business in, in 2009 and stuff I wrote on the capital markets and fixing the game in 2011. So in some sense, this stuff is all weaving together in a way that that I didn't actually realize. It was when I sent copies of the manuscript to friends for for editing. They one of my one of my proteges sort of said, "Roger, do you realize sort of like how much this this uh, reflects and ties together what you've done before?" And I said, "In what way?" And then she specified all these ways, and I said, "Oh, you got a point there." So it was sort of it was sort of kind of an interesting development process of the project of what ended up being a six year project and the development of the of the book. Mm. Last but not least, you have an agenda for citizens, everyday folks. Yeah. So 
everyday folks, I think, have to help put essentially friction into a system that's getting frictionless. So, so the, the, the more pressure you have, the more you're going to get these, these extreme outcomes. And, and so one of the things I'm a proponent of in, in the book is utilizing the purchasing power to fight these extreme outcomes. And one way is what, what's called multi-homing. That is, we contribute as citizens to these dominant outcomes when we say, Facebook is handy for our news feed, so I'll get all my news from Facebook. Amazon Prime is handy for getting my goods to my door, so I'll, I'll uh, use Amazon uh, Prime, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, when everybody else chimes in and does that, you end up with, with monopolists or near monopolists. Citizens have the power to stop that just by literally saying to themselves, sometimes I'll get my news from Facebook and sometimes I'll get it from a subscription to the you know, Wall Street Journal or Washington Post or the like. Sometimes I'll buy an Amazon Prime, but sometimes I'll go to the store or sometimes I'll buy from the direct websites of, of the companies that, uh, that serve me. They just need to multi-home and you will have a dramatic in decrease in the monopolization of sectors. It's slightly less efficient, right? But it's having a balance of efficiency and resilience that we need. We're creating non-resilient monocultures, and citizens can play a big role in tiny ways. If every family in America just did a little bit of multi-homing. They use Uber sometimes and Lyft other times and yellow cabs another time. That would make a huge difference. I'm reminded of the uh, the campaign. I think American Express has every November. It's a small business Saturday. And it's, it's, it's the fifth or sixth or eighth year they've done this. And, and Roger, every time I come, it comes around, I'm always baffled. 52% of the U.S. economy is driven by small business. Why isn't every Saturday Small Business Saturday? Or why, why don't we shop more the, the local stores at that quaint, charming little neighborhood area that down, that's down the street versus kind of what seems to be our norm, which is it's just easier to get on Amazon's website, click, and it shows up that afternoon or the next day? Absolutely. Uh, and and that's, that's why, that's why I say it, it doesn't have to be a big thing, just a little thing. And I love, I love actually that, that Amex small business Saturday thing. I've, I've, I've always loved it as an, as an idea and reaching out to that, that uh, customer base, but it, you have to have a purpose. You see, you see, David, I don't think people do that now because they don't have a purpose in it. And I want in part this book to say, actually, you may think it's not really relevant who cares it makes a big difference just do a little bit of it and and in the book i have uh, i have all these uh, recommendation 18 recommendations the only way you could get to be a recommendation in the book was somebody is doing it or has been doing it in the past and it's been successful so i'm not into any theoretical let's do something that's never been done before everything in the book has been done uh, all we need to do 
is to have more people do more of it, more executives do more of it, more public policymakers, political leaders doing more of it, more educators doing more of it, more citizens doing more of it, not people have to do a completely new thing. Nope, nothing untried, nothing untested, just more of, uh, of, of these things. And that will just take that, that edge off the obsessiveness of uh, uh, of the pursuit of efficiency. As I was reading the advanced copy, Roger, I found myself asking questions of my family and friends about some of those recommendations. Is that is that your hope? Is that your aspiration that this sparks conversations and curiosity of what if we became more intentional about some of these things that you're recommending for each of these archetypes, if you will? Yes. I mean, you said it better than, than, than I probably could have. That is exactly what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that I can put in people's minds a different metaphor. We are not all operating and optimizing a machine. We are taking care of a complex adaptive system, like our garden, like the Amazon. Uh, and that means doing a few little things differently with a different perspective in our in our mind so our mindset will be a little different and we're going to do things a little bit differently this is not some ginormous immense task i don't want to have people come away feeling that i want to have people come away saying oh 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 so that mm, i i just have to do that okay that's yeah, that may be a little challenging, but that's not insanely difficult. That's that's what I want people to read. And I, I would hope after reading the book, they can't uh, unsee it, right? So they can't go back to the machine metaphor. They, they can't unsee the economy and business and, and their society as anything but a complex adaptive system. Mm-hmm. I love the Amazon jungle and the interconnectedness of that ecosystem analogy. Yeah. Roger, as we, you and I spoke, curve benders is this nexus of future of work and, and strategic relationships. Are you at all concerned about the uh, rising tide with, with ideas like the new Green Deal and the sudden uh, attractiveness of socialism or, or socialistic kind of concepts when we're both at heart, uh, you know, capitalists? Absolutely. I mean, I guess, I guess I would like to think of this project as being prescient. Remember, it was launched in 2013. And, um, and so there weren't polls in 2013, saying 40% of Americans and over 50% of young Americans are kind of would be open to the idea of a socialist uh, leader. But the concern was exactly was exactly that, that that there would be another fundamental system be contemplated if this one didn't work well enough. And I, I would say it's prescient in terms of two political uh, events, uh, the election of Donald Trump and, uh, and Brexit, right? I'm not going to be political and be on one side or the other. I would just make the observation that many voters of for Donald Trump when asked why, their response was, we just wanted to blow it up, right? 
Washington wasn't working and we wanted to blow it up and he was the blow it up candidate. It was the time for an out, outsider to, to, uh, to do well for that, for that reason. Now I'm not saying it's a good thing, a bad thing, anything. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm neutral on that, but I think it is inarguable that it was in part a blow it up, uh, vote. And what was the Brexit vote all about? Now, it may be a, an apocryphal story, it probably is, but it makes for such such a good one that the number one search term on Google the morning after the Brexit vote was, what is the EU? Right. So people voted to blow up the EU, or at least England's, Britain, Great Britain's uh, relationship with, uh, with the EU. Let's just blow it up without even understanding kind of like what it is and what was going on, but we're going to blow it up. So, so I think the, these blow it up votes plus the uh, rising tide of, of, uh, of socialism uh, in, in America is our predictions that, that I would, that I was essentially making in, in 2013, that we have to have a different fundamental narrative for the median family in America where they're going to start marching ahead nicely every year or there will be continuous pressure on the idea and ideal uh, that the ideal of democratic uh, capitalism. Roger, this has been enlightening. Thank you for your insights. And I would encourage our audience to pick up a copy of When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. Roger, for those who want to learn more about you and your work, what's the best way for them to learn more and maybe get in touch? Sure. Uh, it, it would be uh, my my website. I have a website, www. Uh, W dot Roger L. My middle initial is L for Lloyd, Roger L Martin.com. And it's got all my writings on there, the ways to get the, the books and, and, uh, they can contact me, uh, there, or they can contact me at Roger at Roger L Martin.com. Thank you for being guest on the Curve Menders podcast. Thank you for having me, David. If you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curvebenders book on why strategic relationships will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. This will be book number 11 with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, great interviews like the one you heard today. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the members of our NOR forum community. So go to norgroup.com slash forum and check out the Curve Benders thread for more details. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Roger Martin. This was one of my favorite interviews as I so admire Roger's intellect, extensive research, and focus on this crucial topic of democratic capitalism. Three comments Roger made during our interview really resonated with me. Number one, measure of efficiency can't be a proxy for outcomes. I, I can't agree more with the fact that many of our metrics – are too narrow and too short-term. We have lost the ability to really think of the long-tail impact of our actions, of our policies, of what we do and how we do it. 
Number two, economy as a complex adaptive system. I love his analogy of think of more of an Amazon jungle and not a machine. And I, I'm guilty as charged. I often talk about revving up this engine and how do we get this thing moving and fueling the pump. And he's exactly right, is we kind of think of it as this perfect mechanical versus a living, breathing, constantly and very dynamically changing environment. So if you think of it as a little differently, what could your own actions, your own behaviors do to impact it? And which leads me to number three, which is this idea of multi-homing. He's right. Again, guilty as charged. Most of us get our information. We do our shopping. We pursue experiences in a very monopolistic approach versus how do I spread that? How do I really create multi-homing for where I get information, where I shop, how do I create additional experiences? So don't forget, I turned these show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles. So please, in the next week or so, check out our blog at norgroup, N-O-U-R group.com slash blog. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work. So I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag Curvebenders podcast. So make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. Thank you.